It's day 56 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Well, today we are continuing in the book of Numbers with the people having been organized and ordered, and now they're being challenged to maintain that purity before they set out to the promised land. But before we get into it, if you could please help us out by hitting that like button, letting us know you're ready to dig into the word and you are loving being a part of the Heart Dive family, and that will help us to continue to spread this word throughout the nation of YouTube and also throughout the world as people share this with their friends and family, hopefully getting people people excited about God's Word, about making sure that they read every single word of the Bible and the importance of it. And we're seeing that right here in the book of Numbers. Also, make sure you're subscribed to the channel. You got that notification bell on. And if you have any questions at all, make sure to check out the description box or the show notes below the video. Or you can always head to our website, heartdive.org, where we have a plethora of information there. And a reminder, once again, the March bundles of the heart checks are now available on our website. You should have received an email from Holly regarding that. But if you didn't, you can always go to our website to grab those. And of course, thanking everybody in advance who are purchasing those to support us. This is part of our tent making. So Holly and I are definitely grateful for that so that we have the ability to be able to continue doing the work that we're doing. And we're loving every single moment of it. All right. Let's go ahead and pray, prepare our hearts as we dig in to the book of Numbers. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, for a new day. Thank you, God, for new weeks where we get to begin and have a fresh perspective, have new energy. So I pray that over every single person today. Lord, will you refresh their spirits, their minds? I pray that you'll wash away any impurities, wash away any sin, wash away any distractions that is going to try to keep us from having that clarity of hearing your voice above all other voices. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins, and I just pray that you will help us to forgive others. As we open up your word today, Lord, the daily manna, I pray that you will bring the rhema, the revelation, that your Holy Spirit will speak in ways that we've never heard before. We are so excited, Lord, to come before you every single day to have this time of fellowship with you. And we are grateful that we have a family to do it with. We've got friends here. Lord, even though we've never met, we know that one day when we see each other in heaven, we're going to know exactly who each person is and be able to give big bear hugs to them. I'm excited for it. I can't wait for it. And so we love you so much. Thank you for this time. Pray that you bless every person here in Jesus name. Amen. So chapter five is all about maintaining this ritual purity. The purpose of it was that it was an outward sign of their inward reality, or at least what it should have been. Chapter five, verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous. And remember, anybody considered leprous during this time could have been anybody who had eczema, psoriasis, any sort of scabbing, anything like that, but mainly to us known as Hansen's disease or has a discharge in everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female. So that means there was equal status when it came to ritual purity. It did not matter if you were male or female. Putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside of the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. 
Now, we can read these sections about unclean people and be quick to think that God is so cruel and that He was simply trying to shame these people. But if you know the heart of God, you will be able to see beyond such simplistic thinking because we can see the compassion and love of God all over the Bible. So, we've got to view this, these kinds of situations through those lenses, but also keeping in mind God's firmness of His commands. So, the whole purpose of this passage is to remind the people about the importance of maintaining purity and preserving their identity. They were to be a distinct people, which meant they do not conform to those who surround them. So, this idea of purity extended beyond just the spiritual. It had to be maintained at the physical level as well. And hygienically speaking, this protected the camp from sickness spreading throughout, but it also likely protected those who were infected from dealing with that shame that might surround their infliction. So, this quarantine could actually be seen as an act of mercy by God, and they weren't being kicked out or banished from the camp. This was temporary, being quarantined for a certain amount of time until they were made clean again. And we can even look at it like a hospital where they were able to go and get well. But with leprosy representing sin and death being the opposite of life, the underlying principle for us here is that if we want to be a promised land type of people, we must remove what will defile us and keep it locked outside so that we are not infected by it. And this doesn't mean that we will never sin, but it means we are not blatantly walking in sin with zero regard for it. Because the church will never be effective if we are conforming to the world and allowing it to shape us. So heart check, is there anything in your life that needs to be separated and locked outside the camp? So this first section was all about this interpersonal relationship with God, and now we move on to the relationships with people. So we start with that vertical relationship, now moving to the horizontal. Verse 5, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt— He shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. So here we see that God cares about our relationships with people. You see, before entering the promised land, the people needed to be also pure hearted and having broken relationships would never foster that kind of pureness. So two things needed to take place, confession and restitution. And confession actually goes beyond just apologizing, saying, oh, okay, I did wrong. It's actually accepting responsibility and not trying to pass the buck like we saw Adam do or even Cain. And in doing this, you make things right with God. But to make things right with people, that is where restitution comes into play. And even whenever we wrong someone, I mean, he wants us to make it right. If we have bitterness or jealousy in our hearts, he wants resolve. So heart check. Are there any relationships in your life that need resolve? Do you need to make restitution where you may have wronged someone else? But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. So any of the offerings that were meant to be given to the priest 
priest belong to the priest and the priest alone. But anything else that is offered, things like a peace offering, that would be returned back to the people to be able to enjoy in this fellowship as well. And the priests could not take that portion from him. It would kind of be like a good piece of meat that they were given to be able to enjoy this. Verse 11, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, so meaning she commits adultery, which we know that adultery, the payment for that was death. If they had two or more witnesses to be able to prove this, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it, because remember, oil was a symbol of joy, and there was no joy going on here. I keep dropping my pen. And put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. So this wasn't necessarily for the people to remember what they have done wrong. This was a public event. And so this would be a remembrance for all people, kind of like serving as a warning to them, like, don't do this. You don't want to go through this whole ritual here. Now, defiling herself, what does that mean? Well, if she did, in fact, sleep with another man, this would be potentially tainting her womb and affecting the paternal genetics of the actual husband. And sinning in the act of adultery was actually sinning against God, not just the husband. Now, before we even move forward, because I know a lot of people are probably already cringing at this, like it doesn't seem fair. Why is the woman the one who is held responsible? There are a lot of spiritual implications to this as well, because if we look at it spiritually as Jesus being the bridegroom, we are the bride. If we are unfaithful to him and he is a jealous God, you see where I'm going with this? I mean, it all kind of makes sense on a spiritual level. I don't know if there was accountability for men who may have cheated. I sure hope so. I want to believe so. As I was reading, there were some commentaries that say, oh yes, the men would be held to this very standard, but I really don't know. If you've got any solid information on that, let us know. So we'll continue here. Verse 16, and the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head. So this would be signifying her uncleanness or disgrace or mourning and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath saying, if no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. Now this word thigh here could have possibly been a euphemism and a euphemism remember is a kinder word that you use in place of a harsh word. So they believe that thigh actually meant womb. 
because it is the word yarik, which could mean either thigh, hip, or side. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. So by her saying this, she is saying, Amen, so be it. So in saying that, she is one, declaring her innocence, like, that's fine. We're going to allow God to be the judge of me, but also her willingness to allow that judgment to be placed upon her. So she's not making any excuses here. She is just saying, okay, yes, so be it. So then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, and her thighs shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. So these bitter waters were known to make a woman barren, but if she was not guilty, she would be set free and be able to continue to have children. Now, was this left to chance of this bitter water reacting with the biology of particular women in different ways? I am choosing to believe that this was in a time where God was speaking through burning bushes. He was parting Red Seas. He was allowing for the Thummim and the Urim to be able to make decisions. So I'm believing that God's judgment was sovereign here and that it wasn't just left to chance. Verse 29, this is the law in cases of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from the iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. If you think about it in the heart of God, this also protected women against jealous husbands who had no reason to be jealous and just simply were. So this would not allow them to do their own investigation and then take vengeance on both the wife and the husband, which we so often see in modern day society. So it was intended to resolve the jealousy instead of allowing it to fester within the relationships. And while the priests were acting as the judges in these cases, of course, pastors now counsel people to be able to restore marriages, not to judge whether or not a husband or a wife has committed adultery. Chapter six, moving into the Nazarite vow. Now remember, vows were just as binding as written contracts. These oral vows that people would speak, they would be held to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Now, before we move forward, this word Nazarite has nothing to do with Nazarene. It comes from the word Nazar, which means devoted one. So this would be a voluntary, temporary vow. Now, there are some people who did take lifelong Nazarite vows, people like Samuel and Samson, possibly even Paul and John the Baptist. But typically, it would be a vow that one would take anywhere between like a month and maybe even as long as a year. 
devoting themselves completely to the service of the Lord. Would not be able to drink alcohol. We'll continue here. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Now, the days of his separation would actually be determined by the person. Like they will say, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow for 30 days. All the days of his vow of his separation, no razor shall touch his head. So this is the second requirement is one is no alcohol. The second is no cutting your hair until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. So the Nazarites long hair, this was their outward symbol of their inward reality. And this was their identification marker that said, we're set apart. We are dedicated holy to God. So heart check. What markers of identification do you have that shows that you are set apart? Verse six, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. So this is the third requirement. Not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. This was so that they could maintain that ritual purity. Now we will see how they will be able to kind of work around this, but in doing so, they will have to start their whole vow over again. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, so perhaps maybe if they're asleep and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. And on the seventh day, he shall shave it. So he has to go through a ritual cleansing here. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. So he has to bring three things here. He's got to bring the sin offering for the ritual cleansing. He's got to bring the burnt offering, which was what would typically be brought two times a day anyway for consecration and showing that there is complete surrender to God. And also the peace offering, which symbolized fellowship with God and having that harmony with God. So after he goes through all that, then he would have to start, say, that 30 days all over again. So even if he was on day 29 and he was defiled, he would have to start again. And this is the law of the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offering. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord. Sorry, this is where he brings the peace offering. With the basket of unleavened bread, the priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. Why are we doing this? Well, 
Well, because the hair as this sacred object completely dedicated to God would now have to be burned to avoid defilement. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So not only drink wine, but basically go back to life as normal. And why weren't they allowed to drink wine in the first place? Well, this was most likely so that they would have clarity of mind while they were set apart for God and serving Him only. This is one of the reasons why a lot of ministers actually choose not to drink alcohol. It's not saying that you shouldn't, but they choose to take that stance so they don't even flirt with this idea of clouding their judgment. And even for us, you know, anything that clouds our judgment, especially when ministering or serving in the house of God or for the Lord, really, we should not be taking part of that. And that even includes conversation, because we know that gossip and conversation can actually cloud our own judgment when it comes to people and dealing with them. This is the law of the Nazarite, but if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. So recapping that once again, the Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow. It was usually temporary. They would not be able to drink alcohol. They could not cut their hair, nor could they touch the dead. It was a time of total dedication to God, and anyone could take this vow, both men and women. Now, women in Interestingly, though, would have to get permission either from their husband or their father, depending on whose house they're living under to be able to take this vow. And I know people today who still take Nazarite vows. I don't know how significant they are in modern day church societies, but I know people who have done it. And so we close out the chapter here with this priestly benediction. Aaron's blessing, most of you will recognize the words of these verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So obviously, a lot of people know this verse because of the song, The Blessing, or you may have heard your own pastor say this at the end of their message where they send their people off with this priestly blessing. But let's break it down a little bit. The Lord wants to bless His people here. But with any blessing, there has to come a keeping or a protection because this is the word shamar, which means to protect or preserve or to put that hedge of protection around the people. It implies that this hedge of protection is usually a protection of thorns. Now, in this sense, God is our protector. He does place a hedge of protection around us. But some of us have added thorny layers of protection. We've got fences of bitterness. We got walls of anger always ready to bite whenever someone gets too close for comfort. And these layers actually keep us from living in freedom. So heart check, what's keeping you? Does the peace and blessing of God shine upon your life? Or do you have added thorny layers of protection around your heart?
So that first line is a promise of blessing and protection to keep them safe. Now the Lord make his face. This word face is the Hebrew word painim, which means his righteous character. So may his righteous character shine upon you and be gracious to you, meaning having this immeasurable amount of tender care and mercy. I love that so much because I really do feel that God is so gracious to us. The Lord lift up his countenance or some translations say his face upon you and give you peace. Of course, this word being shalom, shalom meaning wholeness, goodness, and total satisfaction. And so his face shining upon them would be his full attention, looking toward them, meeting every need, looking favorably upon them. Because, of course, we know that God has a glorious and a happy face. And so this would be this picture of him being well pleased with us, looking at us with a look of approval rather than looking at us with judgment all the time and like, you're doing wrong. You are not well. When he sees us as Christians, he sees his son and he loves us and he looks at us with such a beautiful, glorious face. So breaking it down here, the purpose of this blessing was to bless and protect to show that God was pleased with them, that he would be merciful and compassionate, that he would give them approval or favor, and that he would give them peace. And we can even see the Trinity illustrated through this blessing as God the Father does indeed bless his children and protect them. The Son, Jesus, shines his face and brings grace to us, the gift of grace. And the Holy Spirit is the one who communicates that attention of God and he gives us peace. So this doesn't prove the Trinity, but it definitely paints a picture of it. So in the end, we see that God loves to bless his people and we tend to shy away from this because we don't ever want to make the gospel about ourselves. But you cannot deny God's blessing based upon your own false humility or because of things like the prosperity gospel or what people have said that have countered this beautiful idea of God wanting to bless you. If we only sit in a place of looking at God as this mean judge in heaven and never his blessing, we will completely miss out on the fullness of his glory. And this priestly benediction has the word you in it six times. We bring him glory and he blesses us in return because our relationship with God is a two-way street, not a one-way street. Imagine how he feels whenever we're like, nope, I'm not going to take your blessing. I only want your punishment. I only want your chastisement. I mean, he must look at us like we're crazy folk. But it is also important to recognize that because God's blessing is always for our good, it won't necessarily be something that is going to make your life easier. Just saying. I mean, a comfy and cushy life isn't always the greatest and highest good for us. And only He knows what is best for us and how we need to be blessed. But a true blessing goes well beyond prosperity and comfort. And we should never deny it in the name of humility or unworthiness. I mean, I struggle with this. I have a really hard time receiving approval or the blessing of God because of my own unworthiness. He has been working on me with this and he continues to work on me. But denying his blessing is denying him. So heart check. Have you allowed yourself to receive the blessing of God on your life? Or are you rejecting it because of unworthiness or in the name of humility? And what's even more cool is that as a royal priesthood, we can pronounce blessings over people. And I find that the best people to receive the blessing of God 
are the ones who have hurt you or wronged you or the ones that you consider an enemy. Because either we will keep them in that space of enemy territory where they can continue to be evil, or we can watch the beauty of transformation and a person having a true realization that they were wrong and now they desire to come to repentance. So the next time that you want to curse someone, try this blessing instead. You don't have to speak it over them, but maybe pray for them. Just say, Lord, bless them. Protect them from the ways of the enemy. I pray, Lord, that your face will shine upon them. Illuminate every dark corner so that your righteous character will break forth upon them. I'm no more deserving of your mercy, God, than they are. So be gracious to them. Give them your full attention so that they will turn toward you instead of lashing out toward others. Give them peace, God. I pray that they will have wholeness and total satisfaction in you so that they won't look for false satisfaction that comes in hurting other people. And then watch how that changes your heart and it puts you on now higher ground away from their ability to ever hurt you again. So heart check, is there someone that you can bless today? And now taking it a little bit deeper, How are the concepts of cleanliness and purity seen in communities today? How do we calibrate that with the way one looks at one who may be unclean? How might restitution still be applied today? What principles stand out the most in the testing of the bitter water? And is the Nazarite vow still something that could be well implemented in one's spiritual journey? Is it realistic? And what does the priestly blessing mean to you personally? So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for blessing our lives so abundantly. We don't need to wait for a periodic blessing of a priest or a pastor to receive your favor and your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for that hedge of protection that you do place around us so that we can live freely in wide open spaces. I pray that your face will indeed shine upon us so that we are able to reflect your righteous character. Thank you, God, for your tender care and your mercy that you bestow upon us beyond any measure that we could ever use. And I thank you for having eyes on our every moment and every need. When we recognize this, it is so much easier to have peace knowing that you do look favorably upon us. So may we bear your name with a joy that so blesses your heart whenever people see that mark of identification upon us. I pray that we will live our lives in purity and holiness so that we do not defile ourselves as you dwell within us. We don't want to ever taint anyone else's view of who you are. So may we keep all things impure far from us. We want to always have free and open fellowship with you. So I pray that if there is anything that we need to remove from our lives to have that, please show us what that is and give us the strength to do so. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of the importance of our relationships here on this earth. And I pray that we do everything in our power to maintain healthy relationships, both with you and with people. If we have ever wronged anyone, show us how we can make it right and even go above and beyond in order to restore that harmony and that unity. I pray that we won't just confess for the sake of apologizing, but truly take responsibility for anything we may have done wrong. We know that it is a major part of our own restoration. So help us to see where we have erred so we can be made whole. And where marriages may be suffering due to a lack of trust or jealousy or even past mistakes, Lord, I pray that you will intervene today. 
Thank you for the gift of marriage. I pray that those of us who are married will see it and our spouse for the gift that they are. May we honor our relationship with them just as we honor our relationship with you. Our earthly marriages really should reflect our heavenly relationship with you as our bridegroom. I pray that we never do anything that would give our spouse a reason not to trust us. And I pray against any undue jealousy, for we see how destructive it can be. Thank you, Jesus, for drinking the bitter waters for us so that we could be set free. And as we read about the Nazarite vow today and understand the seriousness of it, I pray that we will understand the why behind it, that a life in dedication to you should never be taken lightly. I pray that we will all set that determination in our hearts to honor you with our lives. Show us what we should be abstaining from so that we can fully devote ourselves without any hindrances or distractions. And again, I pray that our commitment to a life of holiness and ritual purity will be evident to all people we come across. So we thank you for shining your face upon us today. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us, and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing, and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die, but I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer and I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.